Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, all depending on where you're, you're joining us from. But uh, regardless, a very warm welcome to the session today. Um, on behalf of Thurbridge, I'm delighted to, to welcome everybody, including including our panel. Um, for those of you with good memories, earlier this year, we released our PE forecast where we surveyed senior leaders within the, uh, the U.S. private equity space, um, touching on issues such as fundraising, deployment, deal flow, valuation. And one of the other interesting insights to come out of said report was that alongside alongside AI um, within TMT, um, infrastructure was actually one of the segments that had the largest bid R spread, and that was expected to, to remain for, for the next year or so. And it, and as such, we decided to to, to focus um, today on, on on infrastructure. I think, given its um its historic reputation as being relatively staid, you know, these are these are capital intensive assets. The the, the cash flows are, are, are privileged or, or very very visible. Uh, and as such, I think folks have historically, you know, thought it, it may be quite a boring space. Um, but given some of the, the the trends and developments we're seeing on a global basis, I don't think anybody can say today that infrastructure is is boring. Um, you have, you know, accelerating cost of capital, you have high inflation, you have um, geopolitical tension, you have governments that are increasingly looking to take a very active role within the infrastructure space, not just within clean energy, but actually across the spectrum of assets more, more, more generally. And so, you know, we wanted to spend the, the next 45 minutes or so talking through some of the risks and opportunities that that's creating for managers. And, um, you know, helping me in that endeavor is, is of course, Joshua Maxey, co-founder, here at, here at Third Bridge, uh, Harriet Matthews, Senior Funds Editor at Merger Market, and, and Peter McNally, Global Sector Team Lead for Industrials, Materials, and, and Energy. And obviously for, for introductions, my name is Dan Thomas. I'm a sector analyst at, at Third Bridge uh, as, as well. Um, in terms of housekeeping, uh, for those joining us live who would like to submit questions, please do so using, using the speech box uh, in the top left-hand corner of your screen. And one of the team will pass your question along to the panelist at the end when we make space for for a Q and A, um, but but with that said, given we've got quite a lot to get through, I'm going to jump straight in, Joshua, we, with you. Um, just keen to get your your take on on PE deal flow looking forwards. I mean, we we obviously spoke a couple of months ago. Interested to hear if anything's anything's changed. Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, the clients I've been speaking to, not much has changed since the last time. Um, I think it's fair to say that there have been some brighter spots. There are some more sell side due diligence that's happening. Um, and clients are getting ready supposedly for a 24, uh, you know, increased sort of, you know, deal flow. Um, but overall, we've seen a slight improvement, but it's nothing near any of the levels we've seen in the past. Um, Mid-market is certainly a lot stronger for obvious reasons. But yeah, I would say that there hasn't been a marked shift in, in transactions in the, in, the, in the space. I think there was quite a lot of hope for Q for a bit earlier in the year, but that hope keeps kind of continually shifting into the future. Um, but, you know, private equity practitioners have to be eternally optimistic. They are raising funds and they are seeing opportunities into which they can deploy that capital. It's just a question of, of how and when. We're tracking some quite exciting processes at Merger Market in the UK tech sector, for example, um, looking at Civica, uh, backed by Partners Group, and Zealous, which is um, backed by Bain, um, the former, you know, this is a software provider and the, the latter is uh, sort of more focused on HR software. So businesses are coming to market where there is conviction on the side of the seller that they will transact um, because we have still been seeing processes fall over um, on, you know, buyer-seller valuation gaps. Um, as you say, Josh, I think this is starting to normalize. I think part of it is kind of a, 
a mental shift that needs to happen, um, hopefully in early 2024. But it's it's challenging when people's you know models will be thrown slightly out of whack by the higher cost of capital. Mm. So you know it's it's a it's a difficult time to be buying and selling businesses um, candidly. But at the same time, we've seen uh, Europe targeted PE fundraising um, totaling 153 billion dollars this year, which is you know nothing to be sniffed at. Not a bad bad year by any means. So there is you know eternally feel like a broken record there is a lot of dry powder we just need to see it kind of shifting into being um deployed uh you know and there is a lot of hope on on next year so i would yeah i'd agree with you on that i mean of course the other segment that is very active is mid-market for obvious reasons you know financing is obviously a lot easier there are a lot more buyers present there so you know i continually hear that in mid-market things are still very very pretty pretty good I was starting to see evidence that that, that bid-ask spread is is narrowing and that there's a meeting of the minds between buyers and sellers now. I think it, 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 given, you know, just before we, we, we joined the webinar, um, we, we saw news that, you know, EQT had potentially, you know, reignited their, their interest in, in, in Global Switch, um, noting obviously that that deal, kind of that, that discussion sort of broke down earlier on in the year, or actually late last year, with a valuation of about $10 billion. And, and actually in conversation appears to be restarting at around six six point five billion. Um and so I'm, I'm curious, do you do you think that shows sufficient evidence that, that, that bid our spread is, is narrowing and, and we can expect to see more deals happening now? I, I think so. I mean I think next year for sure sellers' expectations will will come down, you know, to realistic levels that should be enough of a catalyst to ignite more transactions in the market. Um I think also, you know, it, when you talk about, for example, you know, take private situations. Historically, when you speak to people who've been around, the, you know, in this market for a long time and seen many cycles, they will always tell you that it takes a good while for boards at public companies to become comfortable with the the offers that have been put out on the table. And we are now getting towards the end of that sort of cycle, I would say, where you are now expect you are now seeing boards accepting that, and there should be, in theory, uh, more of a propensity for them to accept some of those offers. And so I think that, in the absence of, you know secondaries and the other types of normal private equity transactions we've seen in the past. I think take private situations, for example, is one area where you would expect to start seeing boards accept some of those prices. Harry, I mean, le leveraging obviously some of the, the, the data that you have at your disposal, are there any particular areas or, or, or hotspots of, of deal activity that you might see now or expect to see in, in the near future? Mm. Um, I mean, some of this is sector dependent, but some of it is also around um, business models and, you know, things like recurring revenues, um, things like visible cash flows, um, and some of the businesses that do characteristically fit that kind of model um, will be certain parts of technology, um, business services is a big one, and anything that can be consolidated, any sector that can be consolidated is still kind of at the forefront of private equity's mind, partly because of the rising um, cost of capital, you know, more, more operational improvement needs to happen, more kind of uh, buy and build expertise needs to be used into these in these types of situations. So partly around sectors and partly around um, business models where we're seeing um, deals go go through still. What about just in the, in the infrastructure space in, in particular, do you see any particularly exciting areas for deal activity? I think, I think infrastructure is an interesting um, asset class and obviously that's the main topic of our discussion today. When you dig into this, some of the details, you know, first of all, what's the same? That's the way I would look at it. What, what, what is the same between infrastructure and private equity and where does it differ? And I think that those are sort of the, the relevant questions here to ask. You know, and, and when I look at it in terms of 
fundraisings, deal flow, it's under pressure in the same way as most private equity, uh, you know, as an asset classes. Um, and, you know, I've seen some stats suggesting that the funds are coming in at about 88% off target this year. Uh, so it's not terrible. I mean, but it was 116% in, you know, the, the past two prior years. So, so of course, it's, 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 it's challenged. And the, in, the hurdle rate has increased. You know, financings are a much more of a challenge. Um, and what is also the same is that you're seeing bifurcated asset flows. What I mean by that is that you're seeing the large players still accumulate a large part of the pie and the smaller players are struggling. So that is all the same. But what I do think is different with infrastructures is that you've got this huge clean energy shift. You've got this energy transition. You've got obviously much more stable cash flows, predictable. And so I think that is that is certainly where infrastructure is headed. And you know, I saw one stat that suggested that 90% of electricity investments are all in renewables globally. So that just gives you some indication in terms of just how much momentum there is this there is there. And I think also on the exit side, you've got a very different dynamic, which makes that asset class attractive because you've got large utilities, for example, that have to have renewables on their balance sheet. And so it makes them, in a way, force buyers in the market who are willing to pay up the price and put, you know, reasonable offers on the table. So I think that when you go from core to core plus, as you know, many people like to refer to it, I think there is definitely where that's the area where there's a lot of momentum. Now that presents a lot of other challenges in terms of due diligence and LPs, but I think we'll probably talk about that later, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Aria, maybe 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 one for you, and and obviously referring back to to the report where you know the bid ask spread is is wide. How are investors looking at getting access to the infrastructure asset class, given some of the, obviously the benefits that it provides? Um, how, how are they approaching getting access, given given the, the the significant difference that still remains between buyer and seller expectations? Well, what's been interesting to see is some businesses actually are still, you know, some deals are transacting at quite high valuations. Those are ones um, where there's a kind of green transformation case around them um, and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of solid um, business model. Um, my colleagues at um, Infralogic, which is um, another kind of service within the Ion Analytics platform, you know, alongside Merger Market, um, They've been reporting on um, Fjord One, um, a ferry group which was um, acquired by um, DIF, among others. And then um, that actually still got done um, at a price that would have been higher than it may have got done at two years ago, for example. So, um, you know, in some cases, um, people are just able to kind of transact as, as normal. Um, in other cases, people are just needing to hold assets for longer, essentially. Um, maybe we'll talk about this a bit later, but GP-led secondaries, there's a huge amount of potential for that. In the infra space, um, infra assets already have longer holding periods anyway. So, you know, um, a GP-led secondary kind of works. It makes sense. It's less disruptive for the business when there's no actual ownership change, no capital structure change. It's being transferred from one fund to another. Um, different LPs and secondaries investors can come in and get exposure to that particular asset or a group of assets if it's a kind of multi-asset continuation vehicle. So that's that's one one option for deals where the current owner may feel it's not quite the right time to exit them on the kind of open M&A market. Well, what, what do you think is going to be a more significant factor or aspect there, the, the continuation piece or more uh, LP-led so kind of secondary stake sales? Um, I mean, infrastructure is a smaller and younger asset class than private equity is. And we can see that just in the fundraising figures. Um, particularly strong year for global infrastructure fundraising last year was 140 billion. This year it's down to 20.6 billion, which is is quite a jump. Um, 
but you know private equity in a sort of you know not so positive year even this year has raised 153 billion dollars this is for the european market in the year to date so just kind of comparing and contrasting that there's a huge amount of opportunity um, and there are still a huge number of institutional investors looking at the primary fund level to get into infrastructure and that appetite um, for exposure and diversification has also been evidenced by the fact that we've got people like CBC and Bridgepoint buying infrastructure managers. Um, they, the expertise that those teams have is, is really important, really valuable. You can't just start an infrastructure strategy. You, you are probably going to need to buy or at least get in the people with the right expertise. It would, would, what do you kind of take, or what's your, what's your take on that? To, to, to Harry's point, you've got obviously larger funds coming in and buying infrastructure platforms directly. How, how do you think about the implications of that as part of the, the wider kind of PE landscape? Yeah, I, I think, um, and, and I've actually heard this from a number of my clients, is that a lot of these firms want to become platforms and they want to be diversified and they want to be multi-managers. And I think that is part of this play, CVC, Bridge, bridge, um, bridge point. So I think um, I, I think I think these are this is just what we're seeing, and I think the asset class itself lends itself very well to a number of LPs who want to have that predictable longer duration type uh, return, and 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 so there is a bit of a matching you know effect going on here as well. So no, I think I think I think it's 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 really part of the strategy that some of the larger funds have got. Which I expect, I would expect us to see more of that going forward in the future as well. That's going to be have a number of, of questions already that have come in from from the audience on some of these points, but we'll we'll potentially save those for for the Q and A at the end. Um, and so with that, I, I'm keen to turn over to to Peter. Um, Peter, welcome. Uh, referring back to referring back to the report, um, that, that forecast is obviously showing the expectation that bid ask spreads will remain wide in the infrastructure space, um, not least in, in, in energy uh, over the next 12 months. And I'm, I'm just curious how maybe you're thinking about the market opportunity within, within infrastructure. Well, I think there's two different categories that we like to think of on infrastructure that encompasses lots of different areas in the, you know, in the economy and the market. On the one hand, you have the kind of the more legacy things that, uh, you know, roads, bridges, Tolls, uh, you know, utilities, thing, things like that, existing physical assets. And at times they need catch up. They need, you know, money to, you know, uh, to bolster the assets, you know, as they are today. And then we have the growth areas, right? And uh, as Josh mentioned, some of the, the renewable growth that we're seeing, but also data centers, life sciences, and those are more greenfield type investments. And, you know, those are going, valuations, they're going to be influenced a lot by that discount rate and, and, and borrowing costs. But you know, more on the energy side, energy covers a lot. You know, if we're not just talking oil, natural gas, electricity, biofuels have, you know, now entered, you know, the market, we've seen a lot of volatility in those prices. And it's hard to get buyers and sellers to agree on what the right price into the future is. And when you look out in the future in most of these commodities, so you, you see lower prices in the future because there's more capacity, but it hasn't stopped the volatility that we've been seeing. And if I roll back, let's say to the summer of 2022, Europe, the US, there was a lot more volatility in in power prices and the summer of 2023, a bit less so, uh, or a lot less so because 
you know, frankly, the system didn't didn't break down and there weren't as many like disruptions that we had seen prior. So that's kind of how we would bucket the market and why we're seeing some of those wider bid ask spreads. Maybe so some of the, 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 the trends and the themes that we, we alluded to at the start, one of which was obviously increasing government participation in, in the infrastructure space. Um, you know, we can maybe touch on utilities in, in the UK, or we could talk, talk to, to the IRA, um, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, what opportunities and risks in your mind are being created as a result of, a, you know, an increasingly, um, you know, activist government in the infrastructure space? Well, why don't we start with utility, yeah, water utilities in, in the UK, where we see a lot of interest, you know, particularly at Third Bridge Forum in it. And there's a an easy narrative, I think, that gets told that like this was an industry that got privatized and 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 the investors that took over these assets paid themselves dividends and didn't invest enough. And you know, like the investment, the lack of investment is partially true, but part of the story here is changing government regulations. And it's made it quite difficult for these utilities to invest. Now, there are big investments that need to get done here, okay? And and our estimates are that over the next decade, CapEx has to be 50% higher. And that that's something that the owners are, go, are, are going to have to live with. But the consistent, the, the consistent theme here is changing government regulations. Whereas I would say in the power side or what, you know, what we've discovered from talking to our experts and that they've made it a bit more or a lot more easy to invest in power. And we've seen growth in solar and wind in, you know, in the UK. But this situation with, uh, you know, Thames Water or Yorkshire and these other these other companies, it is a struggle and there's going to be more investment needed and it's going to take cooperation from the government. In terms of how do you see that that kind of issue or that challenge being addressed? Is it through, you know, tariffs going up or are uh, your sponsors or asset owners, are they going to have to inject more by way of capital or is it likely to be kind of a combination of, of the two if we use the, you know, if we use the water utility example? It, it's certainly going to be all of the above. It's going, you know, it's going to have to be high, higher rates. You know, the part of the problem here is the already high debt levels in, in this industry. And you know, divestitures are not going to be that easy because there's going to be, you know, more investment required. Whereas in, you know, some other areas, I think it's going to be e easier to do. Um, but, uh, you know, we are looking at higher rates, higher investment, and, you know, also a difficult supply chain and, you know, is one of the other factors that's going to, you know, play out here. Um, you, you, you touched on growth categories within within the infrastructure space. Maybe you could just share some more kind of color around those. Well, you know, as I noted earlier, this past summer was remarkable in terms of just how hot it was and power demand loads in both Europe and the US. Yet really, except in a couple like local spots, the system didn't break down. And there's been a lot of capacity that has been added, solar, wind, and I think something that's really starting to emerge here is battery backup, uh, you know, for, for these systems. And, you know, Northvolt has been something that's now talking about an IPO next year or something around $20 billion. But batteries are making a difference. The business models and competition from China also come into play here. But there's certainly been a lot of capacity added with government encouragement. 
you know, for, you know, for sure. However, power prices have cooled off here. And, you know, where I sit here in, in, in the U.S., there's competition from cheap natural gas. Uh, you know, we had this uh, cancellation here in New Jersey uh, on, a, on a big power project um, just yesterday from Orsted, the Danish utility. But, you know, there, there's a lot of moving dynamics here, you know, in this sector that's just going to complicate it for the yeah, for private investors. You do think that that Orsted example in in particular points to additional challenges, particularly within existing projects in the in the renewable space. Um, how far do you view that as as kind of sector wide versus more kind of idiosyncratic? Well, I think that situation may be more idiosyncratic here on the East Coast. You know, governments are encouraging this stuff. You know, like for sure, it comes down to economics and is is really the you know the issue and higher rates higher costs uh and lower power prices are are making this a lot more difficult in this part of the country you know geography really matters you know for sure and and this is a part of the world where gas is cheap and abundant europe doesn't have that anymore that went away with russia um so you know it really geography matters here Understood. What what um maybe what are some of the challenges that the private equity investors face investing in infrastructure um, at at the moment? I think in particular, if we can touch on again government involvement, like the Inflation Reduction Act, do you see that throwing up any particular acute challenges? Well, in in theory, the Inflation Reduction Act was gonna you know was gonna change a lot, and then in practice, we're finding out it's a lot more complicated. And there's a lot of devil in, in the details in terms of domestic sourcing. And this is an area where, you know, the supply chain issues have gone away that, let's say, started during COVID that pretty much manifested itself everywhere. And I would say that, like, the two areas where it's, like, still, like, kind of a, a, a persistent problem would be in the aerospace sector and in this renewable sector. And the idea that, like, you need, you know, U.S.-produced steel let's say, to mount a solar tracker or, or, you know, something, some, you know, low value part of a, you know, a, a, of a solar panel has to be sourced in the United States and what those rules are. It's making it very difficult to actually deploy the capital. Um, so there've been a lot of projects that have kind of been held up as they await for clarity on what actually qualifies for the credits in, you know, in the Inflation Reduction Act. And uh, so 2024 is going to be a big year for, you know, for hopefully clearing that stuff up. But it is also adding to the costs of these projects in in, in the renewable space. How how do you view maybe, I, I guess, the, the relative attractiveness of, of direct investment in these assets that are that are core to the, the the energy transition versus maybe investing in in the supply chain or the, the facilitators. Because some of the challenges, to your point, that that we've seen in in some of the the offshore projects have been, you know, challenges within the, the supply chain and the supply chain not being able to keep up and what have you. So I'm curious where you maybe view, yeah, the the, the, the relative kind of risk reward or opportunity being. Well, I think maybe let, let's go back to the beginning of talking about greenfield versus brownfield. I think here in the United States, you know, for infrastructure, there's a lot of value in the brownfield. That's what I, you know, I would say is that really we don't have a lot of offshore wind and at, which is making the cost, you know, of the supply chain like very, you know, very high. But 
hydrogen is an interesting area here in particular because a lot of it comes from natural gas, believe it or not. You're not investing in new technology. It's basically like steam methane reformers uh, that have been used for decades and not the green hydrogen that uses electrolysis where there have been some struggles that we've seen to really scale scale it up. But at the same time, transportation of hydrogen is able to leverage the pipeline network that we have here in the United States. So the government just, you know, agree we we granted like seven hubs for hydrogen in, in the United States. And it does present uh, an opportunity for a lot of those brownfield assets, you know, to, to really make some money here. How, um, you know, this is, this is maybe a, a public markets example, but how, how important do you think the, the Northvolt IPO is in terms of, you know, establishing multiples in the market? Well, you know, it, uh, Northvolt does have a, an important legacy from Tesla, right? Which has been by all accounts, extremely successful, right? In terms of the ability to deliver over a million cars a year on a consistent basis and, and do it do it profitably. The the Northvolt model, you know, looking at doing it in in an integrated way from raw materials really is something that I think in public investors are going to find attractive. But the I think that there are going to be two questions that public investors may, you know, pose to them is like one would be a smaller one. Part of the business is going to be recycling, you know, of, of batteries and and that has proven to be difficult. For everyone, it's sort of more, you know, newer technology and the questions around whether people can do it, but it's Chinese competition is really going to be the big story for, uh, you know, for Northvolt and cheap, you know, renewable, uh, you know, like particularly in the PV or the photovoltaic side, you know, is uh, from China is having a big impact in, in these domestic markets. I mean, under, you know. Uh, under the prior administration, we really in, here in the United States, we limited the amount of uh, solar equipment that could come from China. But uh, sorting those things out, going to you know, going to be hard. But uh, the world's biggest, you know, battery player, uh, you know, contemporary Amperex CATL, is going to be a big challenge for you know Ford Northvolt. But you know, so far, uh, it's been it's been pretty successful in terms of scaling up. They're looking at more expansions here in North America, so certainly one to watch. How, how, how do you think about opportunities within hydrogen specifically then? Because that, I mean, that's one of those ones that's always kind of front and center and there's a, there's green hydrogen, there's blue hydrogen, there's a different color of hydrogen every, every other, every other, other month. So I, I'm just curious, especially given some of the, the practical challenges on yeah. the, the electrolysis side that, that you know, you, you're familiar with, how, 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 how are you viewing that as a, as an opportunity? Yeah. I mean, like, look, if you want to look at infrastructure, there's this massive project in Saudi Arabia called Neom uh, that is trying to do green hydrogen. And, you know, they, they announced a big cost overrun earlier this year. It's an eight and a half billion dollar project. It was something under six. Um, and, and some of it's got, you know, it's not just down to the, you know, the electrolyzers, it's steel and valves and compressors and things like that are all kind of adding up and you're doing it again in a part in, in a part of the world that doesn't have a lot of infrastructure to do these things. Blue hydrogen, particularly, you know, when when you're doing natural gas and carbon capture with it, this stuff is proven. And as I've said, you know, earlier, the United States has a lot of natural gas that's pretty cheap. 
And there's probably even more of it coming, uh, particularly out of Texas. And turning that natural gas, that methane, into you know its component parts, carbon, and capturing that, and then the hydrogen, and using that as an industrial you know source, does present a pretty unique opportunity, I think, here here in the United States. We're starting to see, you know, certainly some PE activity in in the pipeline space, even even like like public companies, you know, as well. But uh, a lot of you know a lot of assets have started to change hands here is something that we haven't seen in quite a while. And I think part of it does have to do with the changing dynamics in natural gas and hydrogen in the United States. Maybe on on on, on, on biofuels as well, we've, we've had a couple of questions there and I know that's the place you've done some work, Peter, um, particularly in the context of, of SAF sustainable aviation. How are you, how are you again, thinking about the, the, the risks and opportunities that investments within um, you know, the, the biofuel space in particular presents. Yeah. Well, Dan, maybe let's start with the risks. And it's pretty simple in the short term. We've overbuilt. Okay. Uh, this is a, you know, thanks to government incentives, particularly in California, in the United States, but also like, you know, in, in Europe, lots of companies have gone and taken subscale crude oil refineries and converted them into biofuel facilities. And... Frankly, like we've overdone it, and our experts are telling us that this situation likely persists until 2025. But there'll be more mandates coming. Um, certainly, around you know, SAF is a is a smaller part of it, but renewable diesel is just going to be a much bigger market. Um, you know, could it get to the same size of what we have here in terms of ethanol? Like 10% of our of our gasoline pool in the United States comes from ethanol, corn based ethanol. Um, hasn't always been particularly profitable, but renewable diesel has been different. Yeah, the market's about three times bigger than what we would think for jet fuel is going to be. But that, you know, we're dealing with kind of a one of these situations where the short term is overbuilt, but the long term, there's clear demand for it. And companies have made money, which is what, you know, in, in this business, which is what has attracted the capital and the capacity in the first place. Are there, are there any other areas where you are seeing particularly interesting businesses cropping up as part of the energy transition? Well, I, I, again, I would, um, you know, go back to, you know, power at the beginning. And we've added all this capacity. I think that uh, the, uh, the electric grid is something that is going to continue to, you know, require investment. I mean, renewables... There's like changing dynamics that goes on and and where power is generated and how it is generated, but the grid is always going to be something that, um, you know, historically hasn't gotten you know enough investment I would say at times, but where power you know where and how power is being generated is creating some interesting dynamics on the grid side. Thank you, Peter. Um, I think now is maybe a good time to just switch over to to the Q and A. Um, we've got a few that have come in. Um, so, so Joshua, I'll start with you. Um, just on, um, given the subject of the, of the webinar, why infrastructure? Why now? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a couple of things I would highlight and, um, I actually, you know, had, had some notes that I sort of prepared as well. I think, um, you know, when you look at it from a macro perspective, you've got, it's, it's, and it's not necessarily why now, but it's always been attractive because you've got inflation linked revenue. And obviously now at the moment, when you're in a high inflation environment, 
that's one of the attractive parts of infrastructure. I, 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 will, I, will, I will caveat that, though, with a big other point, which is that you do only get so far with that one because ultimately your cost of capital has obviously risen significantly as well. So the real value or the relative value that you're getting from infrastructure is arguably much tighter now than it was before. But that said, still, you know, having inflation-linked revenue is an attractive component of infrastructure, and we shouldn't forget that. Um, I think the other part would be from a supply perspective, you've got aging infrastructure, you know, across the world. And we're seeing that, you know, in many, many countries. So, you know, there is definitely a demand, you know, for, 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 for um, deals to be had in that space. You've got secular tailwinds, you know, I call it the four Ds. You've got decarbonization, digitization, deglobalization, and demographics. And I think in the digital part, especially, um, many of the conversations I've had with clients are really centered around data centers, edge data centers. And, you know, it's like data electricity has become like the new oil. And so I think that is a really, really attractive part of, you know, the infrastructure segment that uh, has, 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 has garnered, you know, interest from, from clients. Um, it has obviously got an intrinsic resilience as well that, you know, people expect when they invest in infrastructure. So I think that is something it's you know little correlation to gdp so that again makes it attractive um and it's a very good match for pension funds which i said earlier you know the long duration matches pension fund liabilities very very nicely um and the energy transition obviously that we're going through right now as we've discussed at length i think is another really really important aspect of this on the buyer side i mentioned this earlier as well is there are there are an interesting set of trade buyers that are presenting themselves that make this also because you know the the exit environment is challenged at the moment you know there's no ipos and it's just becoming a, a, a lot bigger concern for investors now when you've got a set of trade buyers that actually have to have these some of these assets on their balance sheets in the long run then it makes it an attractive investment opportunity but that's not to say it's fraught with a lot of risks and uh, and challenges absolutely in terms of your forward-looking perspective, um, are there any particular jurisdictions where you expect deal flow to be particularly active? Um, so traditionally, you know, looking at infrastructure deal flow, the North American market is is the most active, and that's been consistent um, after 2022, which was um, a, you know a strong year for for deal flow. 2023 is obviously a little bit further down. Um, I did take a look at what was showing as being kind of fairly high up in the kind of merger market service, looking at our likely to exit algorithm um, just before we all um, joined here today. Um, so that assigns companies with a score between uh, one in a hundred um, various data inputs. And essentially that score is gonna tell you how likely a sponsor is to exit a particular company um, in the next 12 to 24 months. And just looking at, um, you know, what it kind of, um, what cropped up there, um, Quite a few opportunities in the UK, actually. Um, so um, there's been reporting um, around um, uh, intra, uh, sorry, Instavolt, um, a UK-based um, EV charging infrastructure installer that's owned by EQT Infrastructure, has a relatively high score within our algorithm. Um, again, in the UK, um, Cube Logic, this is an infrastructure services provider, so kind of infrastructure adjacent, but those services providers are something that private equity particularly likes to invest in. Um, and one more example I can give in this context um, is in Australia. Obviously, there's a lot of um, 
activity there sort of within the, the Empress Bray space um, sort of traditionally. Um, one company that um, our algorithm has kind of tipped here is Airtrunk. Um, that's a hyperscale data center provider. Um, we've mentioned data centers a few times um, already. It's owned by Macquarie. Um, and there've been reports on that, um, that the sponsor is exploring an IPO or um, a stake sale, nothing official there yet, of course. Um, but that hopefully gives a relatively good good idea of where there might be activity in terms of sectors in a couple of geographies as well. We, we, we touched on we, we touched on it during the, the discussion, um, but given the, the long lives of, of these assets and some of the end of life fund constraints that the managers are are facing, how, how are they kind of approaching those challenges or navigating those challenges at the moment? So, um, you know, infrastructure funds do typically have a longer lifespan than PE funds anyway. So, and, you know, we were talking about the long-term return profiles. As an institutional investor, you do expect your capital will be locked up for a bit longer. Um, but, you know, in terms of the kind of playbook of how to generate some liquidity in these assets. Um, of course, there's minority stake sales as an option that can be explored. Um, and again, we spoke a little bit earlier about GP-led secondaries. Um, if a sponsor wants to take, you know, the whole asset or a group of assets from one fund to another. So th those are the kind of options, um, you know, and of course, refinancing um, as and when the debt is available. Um, and actually the kind of quite acute problems of debt shortage that has been particularly problematic in large cap PE that's not been as acute um, in infrastructure, especially core infrastructure. Um, so refinancing does remain an option. And that's just due to the, the quality of the, the assets themselves? Yes. So it's kind of around the, the risk profile. Um, direct lenders traditionally could take a little bit more risk than banks. Um, and in PE, banks over the last few years have been kind of just generally retrenching. Um, but uh, within infrastructure, my understanding is the debt dynamics are a little bit, little bit different. You mentioned it, so I'll follow up. But, but direct lending... Um, how active a role do you expect those guys to play in, in infrastructure going forwards? So, I mean, just today, Brookfield um, announced it's raised a $6 billion um, infrastructure debt fund. So, you know, there, there will be activity there. Um, we spoke earlier about managers, you know, buying infrastructure managers and a similar kind of dynamics going on in the debt space um, with kind of, um, you know, lenders looking to expand in various ways, um, whether it's, you know, uh, even an impact debt fund um, or an infrastructure debt fund. Um, again, they need to have the kind of inbuilt expertise to convince LPs to to back them. Um, but certainly there's there's room for it to play a bigger role, um, especially for any of the slightly riskier, maybe newer technologies and assets that um, banks perhaps will be a little bit more wary of. So yeah, my understanding there as well is there's, there's quite a lot of potential. We Sorry. There's an interesting dynamic also happening that I, I hear about, which is the shift of value from equity towards debt or credit in this segment. And um, it's sort of you, it's sort of understandable because when you think about a core plus investment strategy getting at best sort of high single digit returns versus what you can get in credit right now, uh, it's it's very hard, you know, to to to, to see what why you would go the equity route, right? So. When you at an arguably lower risk profile, you could actually go in, into the debt side. So, I do think there is there's an interesting dynamic here happening in the infrastructure side. With with you know with with some of those continuation points in in mind, do you have a feel for how um, how LPs are generally kind of receiving that as a as a strategy by GPs um, versus you know you know entirely new investment. 
It depends on the LP, I would say. So some are maybe more traditional, take a slightly more conservative approach. Um, and either due to resource constraints or kind of on principle, they don't want to be making asset level decisions themselves. They diligence their GPs, their managers, but they don't necessarily be wanting, you know, that they're not wanting to have these opportunities on a single asset basis brought to them. They're thinking about capital allocation on a kind of broader asset class basis. So some are still, you know, a bit wary. Um, I think we're qu at quite an interesting time with continuation funds kind of, um, we will be, you know, next year and the years after as well, because we've seen such a wave of activity. GPs are going to need to kind of bear out their thesis of why they put those assets into a continuation fund in the first place. So that's something we're kind of keeping an eye on. Um, but, you know, broadly, if, if they are used sort of correctly as a good liquidity solution, the thesis is right around them, um, LPs are receptive and it might mean that they can get exposure to an asset in a slightly different structure um, from the kind of main flagship fund and, and for longer and realize some of that value later down the road. So slightly depends on the on the LP type, but um, yes, I, I, I think the jury is, is still out. There's still some skepticism, um, but it's a, it's a massive industry, the secondary industry. So, you know, watch the space. Peter, one one for you. Um, we we talk often about stranded assets in fossil fuels. Um, how do how do you think about the the risk of stranded assets in sort of energy transition related assets, particularly with the technology landscape shifting so quickly? <laughs> uh, it's certainly high. Um, yeah, that it can happen. Although even legacy like oil and gas, it always seems to find a way you know, to do it. But look, things can get renewed at uh, at cheaper costs. Maybe I would point to what we've seen in Greece as an example, and that 25 years ago, they invested in all kinds of wind power. And um, now they're replacing all those wind turbines with newer ones. And they've got a good, you know, co um, construction infrastructure, construction industry in place to develop these things cheaply on time on, you know, on budget. So th there, there is a way and it's profitable. So, you know, I think that's kind of a, it may be a unique situation, but, um, you know, technology has been a big part of the, the solar story. The assets aren't, you know, built to run for, you know, decades upon decades, but you know, new things do come, do come along and there's been, you know, a, a consistent way of, uh, you know, of updating the assets. How, how um, another one for you, Peter. Um, how, how do you view governments as potential exit opportunities for, for, for sponsors or for asset owners? Do you, you know, do you see governments as buyers for large platforms of assets in, you know, some point in the future? Well, I, I tend to see governments more on the, on the front end in, in terms of building things up front or, you know, being partners or providing the, the, the opportunities, you know, where the capital is needed, you know, in the early stage, when, when things start to cash flow and uh, become a bit, you know, a bit more predictable, there are more options other than just these things can be like mega projects, but, uh, you know, for sure, but there are more options for owners or, or financers, uh, you know, even on the, on the debt side to handle, you know, those assets, as long as like the maintenance expenses and, you know, in, in, incredibly high. But most of the capital has to go in upfront, and that's where we see governments, you know, more likely to play. You've given some of maybe the national security aspects around 
the TMT space in particular, we're talking data centers, we're talking about networks. Um, do you think that's different to more traditional infrastructure and will imply a more kind of robust government presence in that in that space relative to say you know toll roads or, or bridges or, or what have you? Well, I think I think we're finding just you know more interventionist government you know, everywhere uh, in 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 all aspects. Whether we whether we like like it or not, there's just a lot more regulation that has to be yeah that has to be met um at all you know points in the in the supply chain and it's just frankly making it more difficult to invest in specific areas so um i you know i would say as if you know a few years ago government affairs seemed kind of a kind of a boring part uh, of, of a lot of companies but um certainly not go, going forward understood thanks peter i think um Looking in the interest of time, I think we're pretty much we're pretty much there. So um, so let's wrap up. I mean, first and foremost, I'd like to thank the panel, um, Joshua, Harriet, Peter. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, and also a big thank you to, to the audience. And a, and a quick reminder that you know, Third Bridge provides investors on a global basis with a, an integrated suite of research solutions. So if anybody um, would like to get in touch and read any of our industry leading content or speak with any of our, our industry experts on, on the infrastructure space, please, please do reach out and, and get in touch and see how, see how Thurbridge can, can benefit and meet your, meet your research needs. Um, but with that said, thanks again to the, the panel and thanks again to the audience. I hope everybody enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. <laughs>